Welcome to the documentary from the BBC World Service, where we report the world, however difficult the issue, however hard to reach. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. In a world that doesn't pause, catching up isn't enough. The Financial Times keeps you one step ahead in your life and career. With breaking news, detailed analysis and a deep understanding of the global economy. Don't just keep pace, set the pace. Fearlessly Pink. The Financial Times. Read more at ft.com slash fearless. If you want to make a change this year, check out How to Be a Better Human, a podcast from TED. I'm Chris Duffy. I'm a comedian, and each week on How to Be a Better Human, I sit down to have an honest and hopefully funny and revealing conversation with an expert who can help us to see the world in a new way. This season, we're diving into everything from how you can love better to how to create habits that stick to how to have hope in a world and at a time where that feels really challenging. You can find all those topics and so many more on episodes of How to Be a Better Human, wherever you get your podcasts. World of Secrets Season 2 investigates allegations surrounding one of the most powerful religious figures of the 21st century, T.B. Joshua. Search for World of Secrets wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello and welcome to the documentary from the BBC World Service, which was recorded on Wednesday the 24th of January 2024. I'm Justin Webb and this is Understand the US Election. guests and I will bring you a user's guide to how the next American president will be chosen, from how the candidates are selected to what happens on the campaign trail, on election night, and the rules for the inauguration as well. And we'll have a few lessons from history along the way. I'm Justin Webb, one of the hosts of AmeriCast, our BBC Sounds podcast on all things American. I lived in the US for the best part of a decade. I was the BBC's first North America editor. I have a child born there too, a US citizen by birth, which gives me an added connection to the place. Here to help me are my fabulous AmeriCast co-hosts, the current BBC North America editor, Sarah Smith, and the North America correspondent, Anthony Zercher. Hello. Hi, y'all. Hello, Justin. It's great to be here. We also have an excellent selection of guests. Ned Foley, Director of the Election Law Programme at Ohio State University. Yes, good to be with you. Mary Frances Berry, who's Professor of American Social Thought, History and Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And Margaret Amara, who's uh, Chair of American History at the University of Washington. Hello, great to be here. Uh, well, thank you very much for joining us. Let's start right at the beginning. Who can run for president? Well, the basics are that you have to be 35 years old and have to be born a United States citizen, and you can't have been president twice before. But then this year, the extra wrinkle is the former president Trump's role in the insurrection on January 6th, whether that could affect his candidacy this year. Yeah, it is more complicated this year, Sarah, isn't it? Yes, there have been legal challenges about whether or not Donald Trump can run because there is a clause in the Constitution that says um, any officer of state who has engaged in insurrection or rebellion 
is disqualified from running for president, but uh, that is being adjudicated through the courts where it's possible that that clause doesn't apply to somebody who did that whilst they were president of the United States. There are other things as well which may come up with Donald Trump. If he is convicted of a felony in any of the court cases that he's facing, that won't stop him running for president because uh, felons have run before, in fact, but they've never won the presidency, which leads us to a possible wrinkle What would happen if Donald Trump had been convicted and sentenced to jail before the election? Could he be sworn in as president of the United States from a prison? Now, it's pretty unlikely that the legal process will have got to that place by then, but it's possible. Okay, let's get back to certainties. The American electoral system, dominated, of course, by the two uh, main parties, the Democrats, broadly left-leaning, the party of Joe Biden, of course, and their colour is blue. The Republicans, known as the GOP, broadly right-leaning, their colour is red. Traditionally, voters ending up with a choice between the nominees of those two parties. So here is my question, Ned. How do the parties select their candidates. We've got caucuses, we've got primaries, and then we've got the national convention. So if we break it down, can we start with the primaries? What are they? How do they work? Sure. And as you say, it's sort of a complicated process. Um, Primaries are preliminary elections run by the state governments and allow the voters of each state one by one to participate in the process that leads to selection of delegates who then go to the party's conventions. So New Hampshire is the state with the first primary traditionally, and that's true again this time. And then there'll be a series of primaries throughout the first months of the year. And what about caucuses? So they are run exclusively by the parties themselves. They also result in picking delegates to go to the convention. But the difference is a a caucus is a party meeting where citizens have to show up uh, usually in the evening and uh, gather in a living room or in a a gymnasium or somewhere to uh, select delegates, whereas a primary looks like a traditional election with ballots and voters go to the polls. And generally, who does show up? I mean, who takes part in the in these primaries and caucuses? Well, the rules vary state by state. Uh, the rules are determined by state law. Uh, all 50 states get to decide for themselves. And then the parties also uh, have a rule since it's their conventions that the delegates are chosen for. But in general, it's voters who align themselves with each party will vote in the party's primary. Uh, and turnout depends on the level of enthusiasm for that party in that state. Right. And the primaries start sequentially. And then a thing happens, Sarah, called Super Tuesday. Take us through that. Yes. And it is early this year. March the 5th, 2024 will be Super Tuesday. And that's when a huge number of states all have their primaries, 15 in all, including some of the biggest states, California, Texas, along with Tennessee, Oklahoma, Massachusetts, Maine, Alaska, Alabama. Lots of them all vote on that day. It's not always decisive that uh, a candidate will emerge victorious from Super Tuesday, but so many delegates are selected from these larger states that day. That's often the point at which you either declare a winner or it's obvious who is far, far ahead. Right. And take us on then to what happens to those delegates, because they go to a party convention, don't they, later in the year. What happens there? What's the formal process there? So the delegates who have been um, selected from these states all hold up their banners and vote for different candidates. So the 
outcome is a foregone conclusion. Everybody knows how many delegates are going to support the different candidates. Everybody knows who the winner is going to be. But there is actually a roll call vote and they all stick their uh, their placards up in the air and lodge those votes for their different candidates. OK, um, let's take a dive into the history now of the process, because, Ned, we've been referring rightly to the two main parties. They uh, will provide this year again the eventual candidates, one of whom will be president. There's no real doubt about that. But we haven't talked about uh, independence. Give us an example, if you can, of a presidential race where a third person from outside those parties hasn't won, but has caused a significant difference potentially to the result. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Some people may remember the 2000 election. That was Bush versus Gore uh, went to the U.S. Supreme Court. But just as important was Ralph Nader, a third candidate on the ballot. Uh, And he was a consumer activist and environmentalist. And he pulled votes away from the Democrat, Al Gore, because he ran to Gore's left, if you will, on those topics. Thank you. It's time to go beyond rhetoric, which the two parties are very good at, especially the Democratic Party. The phony phrases of compassionate conservatism, the phony phrases of Al Gore when he says, I'll fight for you, not for the powerful. It's time to go beyond that, roll up our sleeves and mobilize a movement that tells them what to do. Uh, Most observers think that if Nader had not been involved, Gore would have won the state of Florida and then won the entire presidency. So that's the most recent example of a really significant third party playing what's sometimes called a spoiler role. Even more important was back in the 19th century before the Civil War. This is the election of 1844, which most Americans don't learn about in history, but was hugely consequential because the issue then was the fight over slavery and the anti-slavery coalition was split into two factions. The dominant faction wanted a more gradual elimination of slavery, but there was a smaller faction that there was the purists who wanted immediately abolition. And because they split between their two candidates, the pro-slavery candidate actually won and then began to expand America westward with more and more slave states joining the country, which ultimately caused the Civil War. Ned, what are the chances that now, in 2024, a third-party candidate, or perhaps more than one third-party candidate or individual candidate, standing for the presidency, will make a difference to the outcome? Yeah, this is a significant risk because, again, it happens on a state-by-state basis, the way the presidential system works. So it only has to happen in one or more states, the way Ralph Nader was a factor in Florida. You know, this year, there are several third-party candidates already mentioned. Uh, One is Robert Kennedy Jr., who's the son of a prominent American politician, former Attorney General Robert Kennedy, whose brother, John Kennedy, was president of the United States, so famous American family. He's quite controversial, actually, because he's been associated with the anti-vax movement. So it's unclear whether he's going to hurt Trump more than Biden or vice versa. So he's a wild card. Then there's a a professor named Cornell West, who's a political activist, who has said he's going to run as an independent and he could pull votes from the left if the left wing of the Democratic Party gets upset with Biden over Israel or something else. Cornell West could be a factor. And then the biggest possibility here is something called a no labels movement, which is trying to come up with a 
third party kind of in the middle of American politics. They're looking at people like Senator Joe Manchin, former Maryland Governor uh, Larry Hogan, Liz Cheney, the anti-Trump Republican who people may know as talked about the idea of a third party candidate. So there's a lot of uh, possibility out there for a, a third person affecting the race. And Ned, if Joe Biden were to decide for one reason or another not to carry on, what what would happen then? How late can he leave it? Well, it would be very, very messy, but it's happened before in different ways. In, in 1968, incumbent Lyndon Johnson decided very late to leave the race, and uh, it went to a convention fight again in 1968. The rules are, are different. It makes it harder now for the delegates at the convention to dislodge their nominee. But if Joe Biden had to step aside for health reasons or whatever other reasons, there are party rules that allow the delegates at the convention to come up with a new nominee. So that's how the presidential candidates are selected. Now let us turn to what happens when the fight for the White House moves up a gear. So, Anthony, what are we actually talking about when we say the candidates are on the campaign trail? Well, what it means is that a candidate and their campaign staff and volunteers get out into the states that are battlegrounds, meet with voters, interact with voters and try to convince them to give them their support. It is a series of events. There could be rallies like Donald Trump had in 2016. There could be town hall forums like Bill Clinton in 1992 made famous, sitting down and meeting with voters. It can be going door to door and knocking on doors even. It can even be uh, smaller events. Uh, it can be showing up at the Iowa State Fair. All of this is part of being out there, meeting voters, debating with other candidates uh, and pressing the flesh. Anthony, how much does it all cost? It costs hundreds of billions, even topping a billion dollars to run a modern American presidential campaign. Dr. Barry, where does the money come from? The financing of campaigns require an enormous amount of money, too much in my opinion. A lot of it comes from small donors. The importance of small donors is a candidate thinks that they're proving that they are a man or woman of the people if somehow they get donations from individual people in small amounts. But in the states, we have a limit on how much small donors can give. Uh, and a huge amount of it comes from corporations. We have something called PACs, political action committees. And then they funnel the money into the campaign, which we all call dark money. You can give that money to the PAC and no one can find out who put the money in the pack or what companies put the money in the pack. So it's corporate driven. These huge chunks of it come from corporations and other kinds of interests. Right. You've got, on the one hand, the presidential campaigns themselves raising this money. And then on the other hand, these PACs. Uh, and Anthony, when they amass this huge sum of money, whether it's in a pack, a political action committee or in the candidate's own coffers, what do they do with it? Well, it gets spent on a lot of different things, but one of the big chunks uh, is television advertising. Television advertising is incredibly expensive, particularly in highly populated states, but they also spend it on 
grassroots activism where they help organize volunteers to get out and do that door-to-door knocking and pamphlet handing out and all of that. There are other media outlets that they can use advertising on, such as radio and newspapers. uh, And more and more now, the internet, they can spend it on candidate travel. So you have that candidate on the campaign trail bouncing around from state to state, making public appearances, and also the infrastructure that goes behind that kind of campaigning. So organizing a venue for a rally, renting out the space, getting the logistics all taken care of, the lighting, the balloons, and everything else that goes into pulling off one of these big campaign events. Uh, But I will reemphasize, television, at least traditionally in the modern era, takes up a huge chunk of what campaigns spend. And you say bouncing around from state to state. It's not every state, is it? Explain that. Not every state. Uh, Actually, presidential elections these days have come down to just a handful of what are called battleground states. Those are the states that are very close on a razor's edge between tilting towards Republicans or Democrats. And it can be much more wise for the candidates to invest their resources there where they can make a difference and win the state. This is where the election is going to be decided. And if we look at the battleground states, the likely states that really count this time round, do we already know where they're likely to be? Uh, Absolutely. They've shifted a bit over time. But the battleground states this time round are Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania in the Midwest, uh, New Hampshire in New England. In the South, you have Georgia and North Carolina. And in the West, you have Nevada and Arizona. Now, notice I didn't say Florida in this list. And Florida used to be the key battleground state in the 90s and 2000s. But Florida is one of those ones that is shifting away. It's becoming more reliably Republican, particularly in this case, if someone like Donald Trump, who lives in Florida and has strong ties to that state at this point, if he's on the ballot. If I may interrupt, what uh, Anthony is saying is that some states just get ignored. Okay, you can count on nobody coming in your state to campaign if you're a state where you're either distinctly red, distinctly blue, as we say, and then you don't have to worry about them coming by there. The contestation is in other places, and that contributes increasingly to the sense in some states that the politicians don't care about them and this alienation that we have, as everyone keeps talking about, is a big problem in American politics, of politicization. They don't notice me. I'm too small. Nobody even comes here. If you're out in one of those states in what we call flyover country, they used to call it that in the middle of the country, and you are not a, a state that's in contention, you'll never see anybody. Dr. Barry, the candidates also choose not just between states, but between blocks of people, don't they, to to, to appeal to? Candidates uh, have what they think is their constituency, which they can count on every time. And in that constituency are blocks of people. For example, when women got the right to vote, people first thought that women were all just going to vote like their husbands and we didn't have to really pay attention to them, pay attention to their husbands. And then later on, we found in a few years that women had some ideas of their own and they became sort of a block when, in fact, black folk could not legally vote in a lot of places. Then they were not a constituency that, depending on the election, you would be worried about. But when the right to vote came along, they pay attention to you when you vote as a block and when you adhere to one party, 
like blacks who did vote, voted for Republicans before Roosevelt became uh, president. And then after that, and even now, blacks have been a consistently loyal constituent of the Democratic Party. But that's all changing and that's all shifting for this election cycle. So you pay attention to the people who can vote, who have voted for you before, and anybody who's newly coming in, like new immigrants and people like that, when they get the right to vote. Dr. Berry, can we dive into history for a moment? Tell me about a moment where something has happened on a campaign trail that has really mattered, that has really changed the race. Well, I think that when Jimmy Carter ran for a president and he was known by everybody, this, you know, the governor of Georgia, and he went all over Iowa and went everywhere. And he would say, well, I visited every place. There were no reporters, no cameras, no Secret Service nearby when Jimmy first walked up and introduced himself to countless voters. This style was unheard of for a presidential hopeful. But for Jimmy Carter, there was no other way. Jimmy Carter from Georgia. I hope to be your next president. So that's how Jimmy Carter's campaign for the nomination, 1976, set a precedent for what we're seeing today. And so he traveled to the towns, the cities, to the meeting halls and factories, the supermarkets and sidewalks, talking to as many people as he could meet in as many states as he could visit. Gradually, he began to close the gap between Jimmy Carter, unknown, and Jimmy Carter, a candidate to be considered. Back to today, Dr. Berry, we were talking earlier about the groups of voters that the candidates appeal to, black voters, Hispanic voters, other demographic groups, racial groups, but also social groups more widely. What are the key groups this time round in 2024? Well, for the Democratic Party, aside from the uh, consistent voters that they can count on no matter what uh, happens, which happens with every party, there is a lot of contestation about the votes of Latinos, who some people call Hispanics, I don't know what you call them, Britain, but uh, about the votes of black people. There's been a lot of analysis that says a lot about the street to the Republicans or something. And the women's vote is a focus. Campaigns do direct their attention at constituencies, but they have problems. Uh, take the whole Palestinian-Israeli question. You want to craft a message that will keep you on the right side of most of your constituency and the one you can attract at the same time that you don't lose anybody. And this is a very tricky proposition. So that's what you do in terms of demographies. If people can vote, whether they're new to voting or whether they've been around a lot, what the issues are and whether you can count on them or not count on them and what you have to do in order to count on them. Anthony, are there examples of candidates tailoring their messages already like that? Absolutely. Uh, I think both Joe Biden and Donald Trump are thinking about the general election campaign and thinking about how to pull together a coalition that will win the election for them. So you see someone like Joe Biden really targeting young voters, people of color, because those are key parts of 
his constituency and also their demographics that have seemed to have softened in their support for Joe Biden recently. Donald Trump, he makes his pitch to the white working class, these uh, blue-collar workers who work in factories who uh, may not have a college education, particularly in the industrial Midwest. A lot of his policies on trade, on immigration, on crime, they're targeted towards that group because they could be pivotal in deciding who wins those key Midwestern states. And one of the key aspects of the campaign trail that I want to take a closer look at is the TV debates. Let's start with a kind of seminal moment in US election history. It's the first presidential TV debate back in 1960 between John F. Kennedy for the Democrats and Richard Nixon for the Republicans. Let us hear a bit of that iconic debate from NewsHour on PBS. Good evening. The television and radio stations of the United States and their affiliated stations are proud to provide facilities for a discussion of issues in the current political campaign by the two major candidates for the presidency. The kind of strength we build in the United States will be the defense of freedom. If we do well here, if we meet our obligations, if we're moving ahead, then I think freedom will be secure around the world. If we fail, then freedom fails. The things that Senator Kennedy has said many of us can agree with. There is no question but that we cannot discuss our internal affairs in the United States without recognizing that they have a tremendous bearing on our international position. Margaret, how did it come about? Well, it was the first televised debate between two nominees of the major parties. It was uh, at a moment when, in 1960, this was kind of when television had reached full saturation point in American households. And, you know, almost every household had a television. Over 70 million Americans tuned in. Um, It was a huge event. Now, Nixon was very prepared on the substance. He knew what he was talking about. In fact, perhaps more substantive than Kennedy. Those who listened to it on the radio um, supposedly thought Nixon won the debate, if anyone can win these debates. But yet on television, Nixon, who was recovering from a two weeks off the campaign trail nursing a knee injury, was looking a little peaky. The hot lights of the studio were shining upon him. He had flop sweat and was... Uh, brushing his face with a handkerchief and did not come off well. And Kennedy, in contrast, those of your listeners who are familiar with John F. Kennedy will remember quite a handsome man and very good on television. So the visual triumphed over the substantive. Yeah, which is a lesson about television, I guess. But mm. it's also a lesson to subsequent people taking part, because I'm right in saying, aren't I, that, that Nixon was offered makeup, but had refused it, thought it was was unmanly. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And his five o'clock shadow showed. Um, and in subsequent outings, um, particularly, especially when he ran again and won in 1968, eight years later, Nixon was extraordinarily conscious of his television presentation and, in fact, um, hired a bunch of Madison Avenue ad executives, the real life madmen, to advise his campaign and provide some snazzy television spots and present him in a wholly different light. Okay, so that's what happened. Why did it matter so much? Why was it such a a revolutionary moment? Well, it was the confluence of television becoming this major medium for political communication and also the debate format being something that clearly people were tuning into and that seemed to be quite consequential, a way for the two major candidates or the candidates of a major party to appear together and to say what they had to say about their positions. But more importantly, 
what mattered more was how you said it, how you looked when you were saying it, and what really resonates from the debates and what becomes memorable and recycled are these one-liners, these moments that solidify a candidate's image and reputation uh, or play into a prevailing narrative and reinforce it. And so when we look back on the debates, no one really remembers what was said about policy, but what is remembered are these little moments of asides, one-liners, put-downs that resonate across the decades. Did it swing it? Did it swing the election? It's not quite clear. I think that perhaps the debate of Kennedy, Nixon and 60 has taken on this outsized importance. The election itself was very, very close, uh, extraordinarily close. And so in these very close elections, it is easy to look back on these televised moments, these electric moments that seem to define the candidates and the race and say, ah, this changed everything. But really, when we dig in and look at the polling data, whether it be 1960 or more recently, Um, It is not a decisive moment, but often it can give voters an impression of who a candidate is that can be hard to shake. And Sarah, they have changed down the years. For one thing, everyone takes makeup these days. But I mean, how? What what has happened to the format? Has it progressed? What's its position now? I would say they have become much more rehearsed and practiced as candidates who've been on the campaign trail for months and months by then repeating their same sound bites, their same stump speeches. They tend to use all of the same lines again and again on the TV debate, using as a crutch these lines that they have rehearsed well in public already. And with the result, it stops feeling so much like a debate these days. And it's more like kind of two competing press conferences going on side by side. And if that is the case, do they still have an impact on people's perception of the candidates before they vote? For a lot of people who haven't had the opportunity to see the candidates on the campaign trail, if they don't live in one of the um, states that votes early in primaries or caucuses, this is their best chance to see what the candidates are like when they're not filtered just through a soundbite or the kind of adverts that they're assaulted with on the television. This is an opportunity to see you know, how they perform at greater length and get a sense of their personality, how they interact with their opponent. Because, of course, in America, you are electing your head of state, your president. It's not a government that you're choosing. It is the president. And the debates are the best opportunity for a lot of voters to try and get a a more rounded sense of who it is they're being asked to vote for. Margaret, has there been one since Kennedy Nixon that has had a kind of outsized influence, would you say, that sticks out in recent history? Yeah, there have been a number of of moments that have been um, consequential. I think about the 1980 debate between Jimmy Carter, who was then the incumbent president, and Ronald Reagan, who was then his Republican challenger, and where Carter was really hammering on Reagan for his inexperience. And, and Reagan was seen as a, a something of a lightweight or someone who was not prepared to be president at the time. And, uh, and Reagan was uh, his telegenic self. I mean, he was a movie star for a reason. He really knew how to lighten the mood and kept on saying, there you go again, Mr. President, you know, being dour and down when we should be being optimistic and looking to the future. I also think about 1992 uh, when it's George H.W. Bush, the father, uh, the incumbent president, again, uh, debating not only Bill Clinton, his Democratic challenger, but also Ross Perot, who was the third party independent candidate in the general election.
election then. And Bush was being uh, assailed for being out of touch, for not having his finger on the pulse, being relatable to ordinary Americans. And towards the end of this very long debate that involved two long-winded opponents, he quietly looked at his watch while the other another candidate was speaking. And that moment was caught and really was reinforcing this narrative of George Bush just wanting this to be over, not really caring about what was going on with ordinary Americans. And that was something that was recycled again and again and again. Okay, let's bring it up to date. Sarah, uh, this is going to be an election, this 2024 election, in which uh, Gen Z, Gen Z, millennials as well, making up half of the total electorate. So to the extent that they watch these debates at all, quite a lot of it is going to be clips, isn't it? Viral clips on places like TikTok. Um, So the question, how does that affect the debates themselves and the way they're consumed and I suppose the impact they have? You can bet the candidates and their teams will be putting an enormous amount of thought into crafting moments and lines that will work on TikTok, on Instagram, on any social media platform, because they know that's the way that their message is going to get to these younger voters who are very unlikely to watch the entire thing on television. But what we do know already is the more you try to make a viral moment happen, the less likely it is to take off. It's the unscripted moments, the mistakes, the bloopers that are much more likely to travel. So in many ways, what the candidates have to do is try and avoid doing that. Uh, It may mean that they have to encapsulate their message much more briefly than they would have to for an audience who are going to watch the whole of the debate to make sure that it can travel across social media in a very short clip. And it'll be really interesting to watch whether it means the whole debate becomes much more disjointed than it would uh, when people are assuming that longer clips will be then shared in television news reports later. Now, we've talked about these debates as if they're going to happen again this year. There's nothing set in stone, is there, Sarah, that says they have to happen? No, it's not as though it's an electoral law or rule. Usually candidates agree to it. There's always uh, more in it for the challenger. An incumbent president has more to lose by taking on somebody who hasn't sat in the Oval Office. Of course, this year it's extremely likely that we will have a sitting president and a former president competing against each other in Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And it's highly possible, I would say even likely, that Donald Trump will refuse to take part in these debates. He doesn't need to introduce himself to America via the medium of these debates. The electorate already know very, very well who he is. So he may well think there's not that much in it for him to actually turn up and do these debates this year. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. In a world that doesn't pause, catching up isn't enough. The Financial Times keeps you one step ahead in your life and career. With breaking news, detailed analysis, and a deep understanding of the global economy. Don't just keep pace, set the pace. Fearlessly Pink. The Financial Times. Read more at ft.com slash fearless.
If you want to make a change this year, check out How to Be a Better Human, a podcast from TED. I'm Chris Duffy. I'm a comedian, and each week on How to Be a Better Human, I sit down to have an honest and hopefully funny and revealing conversation with an expert who can help us to see the world in a new way. This season, we're diving into everything from how you can love better to how to create habits that stick to how to have hope in a world and at a time where that feels really challenging. You can find all those topics and so many more on episodes of How to Be a Better Human, wherever you get your podcasts. This is the documentary from the BBC World Service. I'm Justin Webb with Understand the U.S. Election, a nuts and bolts guide to how the next American president will be chosen. So we've talked about how the candidates have been chosen and then battled their way through the campaign trail, doing their best to sway the voters. Dr. Berry, what actually happens on election night? What happens on election night is the collection of the votes, the ballots that have been uh, cast and the counting of them by election officials in each state because it is a state-driven process. And then uh, trying, once they're counted, to say that uh, they're certified and then to announce to the public that X or Y or Z got so many votes in whatever state it is. And then everybody holds bated breath to see when it goes over what they think is the threshold of so many million votes and maybe translating into electoral college votes because you really didn't vote for the people you're voting for. You voted for the electors of the people you're voting for, who are the people who will then be the ones who will uh, cast the ballots that will be seen in Washington. Anthony, Dr. Berry brings up the Electoral College, meaning what? The Electoral College is the system that the U.S. uses to determine its presidential elections. Uh, And in each state, they get a certain number of votes for president, and that's roughly dependent on the population of the state. So a big state, say like California, gets 54 votes. A smaller state like Wyoming gets three. And if a candidate wins a plurality in a state, in all but a few cases, they get all of those states' electoral votes. So what a plurality means is that a candidate doesn't win a pure majority, that is 50 percent plus one, but wins the most votes even if it isn't a majority. So you win a plurality in California, you get those 54 votes. Now, when you combine all the states on the American map together, uh, candidates are trying to hit a magic number of 270 electoral votes. That is uh, roughly half of the 538 total electoral votes that are at play on the American political map. Now, if no one reaches that 270, then the U.S. Congress has to get involved. Very complicated. I won't go into that. And these are actually individual electors uh, in the Electoral College. That's kind of an archaic thing as well. Although I will remind you that in 2020, Donald Trump and his campaign tried to put forward his own electors to claim that Donald Trump won in certain states, not Joe Biden. That includes in Michigan and Georgia and several other states. Uh, Dr. Berry, it's obviously a complicated system. Why? What, what was the thinking behind it? The Electoral College system made sense to the founders at the time. One of their biggest problems was making sure that they could reconcile the interests of all of the states in order to get a constitution. We weren't establishing a democracy. We were trying to make the small states, big states all join together and approve a constitution. And also, they didn't know we were going to have political parties. 
<laughs> they weren't even thinking about that. It was a federal system which relies on state power to an extent. And so they did it for all these reasons. It was not a system to try to trick people or make it complicated or anything like that, but just to make everybody comfortable with the way the power was balanced. Is it fair to say that the system, though, has drawbacks in in the modern era? Oh, absolutely. But the problem with trying to get rid of the Electoral College is that you have to get some of the states that benefit from it to actually agree that you should get rid of it. Think of how hard that would be. So we have a situation then, Anthony, where you need to win in the Electoral College, but that means that you can become president, can't you, without winning a majority of the votes that are being cast. Absolutely. It kind of boggles the mind. But in 2000 and again in 2016, uh, the Republican, George W. Bush and then Donald Trump, won the presidency without winning a plurality of the popular vote. And the way that happens is, say, the the Democrat racked up big margins in a place like California or New York, uh, while the Republican won very narrowly in some Midwestern states. So when you look at the vote totals throughout the entire United States, it actually doesn't help the Republicans. But because of the way the electoral map is drawn and the way this is a patchwork of battleground states, that will determine who's the president. And, And I'll add that the electoral map shifts over time. The total number of electoral votes has been set at 538 for some time. But every 10 years, uh, the United States takes a census. They determine how many people live in each state. They reallocate congressional representation, which then affects how the electoral map votes are tallied. So you see a state like Florida gaining an electoral vote. You see a state like New York losing an electoral vote uh, over 2020. So in 2024, while the map will look somewhat similar, there are some little shifts that make a big difference if it's a close election. And Anthony, that then brings us to this question, going back to election night. In general terms, how quickly and with what degree of certainty do we know is won? You know, the United States is a big country and it has multiple time zones. Uh, And in the evening, the polling places close at a a set time. And so you have the polling places close on the East Coast before they close in California and certainly before they close in Alaska or Hawaii. So what you see is a kind of a rolling tally of what's happening in all these states, which makes for a very dramatic evening as uh, American public sits there and looks at the vote tallies. And it is actually the media that makes predictions about who's going to win each state. So you'll see your local television anchor or a BBC presenter come on and say, we can now predict that, say, Donald Trump won the state of Florida. That doesn't mean that he's been certified, signed, sealed, and delivered and won that state. But looking at the results in that state and looking at the demographics and looking at the places that haven't reported their votes yet, you can make a fairly accurate prediction a highly accurate prediction in this case because the stakes are very high about who is going to win that. And then you wait as these polls close across the the United States, moving farther and farther out west, to see if anyone can reach that 270 electoral vote mark. It still takes time after that for the vote results to be certified uh, and then ultimately for the Electoral College ballots to be passed along to Congress where they're officially tabulated. And then uh, that is when the official winner of a presidential election is declared. Right. So it doesn't happen the day after the election itself, Anthony. There's no official winner declared until it happens in Congress. Exactly. Individual states will certify their election results, will send those certifications to Congress, and they have deadlines in November or December to do that. But it is not officially official until 
the beginning of January when Congress takes action. Uh, Dr. Berry, we know that uh, the last election, the 2020 election, was bitterly contested. We know all about that. Take us back into history to a previous election, the contested election of 2000. So Al Gore standing for the Democrats against George W. Bush for the Republicans. And the state that decided it all was Florida, where the result wasn't clear, was it? What happened in 2000 was that a lot of people claimed that they were not counted or even permitted to vote. People were complaining uh, from Florida with, to government agencies and to anybody they could find that they were excluded from the ballot, that they went down to vote and nobody would let them vote. Uh, there were people who were disabled who said that when they got to the place to go to the vote, they found out that there were no elevators and it was like 15 flights up <laughs> that they were supposed to walk <laughs> and they couldn't. Uh, there was this one uh, black guy who said that he had been voting in every election. He went down and took his children and they told him that he wasn't on the rolls. And he said he felt like he'd been kicked back into slavery. But a lot of uh, events happened. And the governor was Jeb Bush, his brother, which made it kind of suspicious for some people. And there were protests. This protest will continue until there is a revolt in Birmingham. The contestation was a call for recount. Uh, the Supreme Court eventually decided a case in which they approved the count the way it was done and gave the election to George uh, W. Bush. Now, Albert Gore did not have to count those ballots. Uh, he could have asked for a committee, he could have done all kinds of things, but he didn't. And he said he did what he thought was good for the country. And in retrospect, that was probably right. Just moments ago, I spoke with George W. Bush and congratulated him on becoming the 43rd president of the United States. And I promised him that I wouldn't call him back this time. I offered to meet with him as soon as possible so that we can start to heal the divisions of the campaign and the contest through which we've just passed. Almost a century and a half ago, Senator Stephen Douglas told Abraham Lincoln, who had just defeated him for the presidency, partisan feeling must yield to patriotism. I'm with you, Mr. President, and God bless you. OK, and of course, things happened at the last election, didn't they, Anthony, uh, when it came to allegations of voter fraud, Donald Trump, uh, his team challenging the outcome of that election. So looking ahead to this election, how much of an impact is allegations of voter fraud and the fact of those allegations having been made last time going to have on the outcome, do you think, and on what goes on? I think as long as Donald Trump's on the ballot, uh, there are going to be allegations of voter fraud. I mean, Donald Trump, obviously, everyone remembers 2020. But even in 2016, when he won, he made allegations of massive voter fraud. When he lost the Iowa caucuses in 2016, he made allegations uh, of voter fraud. Uh, so I think you're going to see that again. There are some differences between 2020 and 2024. First of all, Donald Trump isn't in office, so he doesn't have his controls on the levers of power. Uh, and also, 2020 was right in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. And that meant that a lot of states changed their voting rules. Absentee 
mail-in balloting was much higher a proportion of the voting than perhaps it will be in 2024, that uh, some state courts changed how those absentee ballots were counted, which raised a lot of anger from Republicans. So it will still be something that is hanging over the election, uh, certainly because of what happened in 2020, but it may not be quite as big a factor. Right. So we made it through the fight to be the nominee, the campaign trail, the very long campaign trail, the fierce TV debates if they take place, election day itself. And there's a winner. Sarah, what happens next? There is not an immediate takeover of power. The new president, he or she doesn't move immediately into the White House the way a new prime minister in the UK moves straight into Downing Street. There is a transition period. And the new president starts to put their team around them and get ready for taking office, uh, which doesn't happen until the 20th of January, when, of course, we have a, an inauguration, which is a, a large and important ceremony that happens outside the Congress in Washington, D.C. And it's at that moment, once uh, the new president is sworn in, that they take control. And, Margaret, when there is a change of administration, do, does the existing administration just cool its heels? What do they do? Are they inevitably a lame duck from that moment on? Well, they are. And so is Congress. Congress is also on this schedule of new members being elected in November. And then uh, the Senate and the members of the House of Representatives take office on January 3rd, a couple of weeks beforehand. So there is this lame duck period. But what the administration is doing in the modern presidency is ideally working very hard with the incoming president and his or her team to get them ready to be up and running at 12.01 p.m. on on uh, January 20th, which is when they have to be ready to go. <laughs> and there might be global crises of all kinds going on and the baton needs to be handed from one to another. That's why the transition period is quite important. Right. Sarah, you're elected president. You've had that inauguration day. You've had the lunch or whatever it is. And you go back to the White House and you sit at your desk in the Oval Office. What do you then have the power to do? Well, quite a lot and not very much at the same time. The president is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces and can command them to do what he or she wants. But if the president concludes a treaty with other countries, that still needs to be ratified by the Senate, which usually takes a two-thirds majority. And the president can veto bills that come from Congress or sign them into law, but the president can't really initiate the legislative process. So in many ways, the president is just receiving from Congress what they want to get done in America and then approving or vetoing it. Of course, there are other things that may come up, like appointing Supreme Court justices, which can be a hugely important and influential thing to do. The one way in which the president can exercise some power is by issuing executive orders. And a lot of them tend to do quite a few of them on day one, because that's the, the, the one way in which they can get their own ideas across. It's not really defined what an executive order can and cannot do, but there are certain places they can't go. For instance, a recent one that uh, President Biden signed trying to alleviate student debt for a lot of uh, US graduates was actually struck down by the Supreme Court who said that really it would have taken an act of Congress to authorise this and that the president alone couldn't do it. I believe the court's decision to strike down my student debt relief program as a mistake was wrong. I'm not going to stop fighting to deliver borrowers what they need, particularly those at the bottom end of the economic scale. So we need to find a new way. 
and remove it as fast as we can. And of course, the other thing, Sarah, that can give you a huge boost of your power from day one on is if you've come into power and either you're inheriting a Congress, Senate and House of Representatives of your own party, or you sweep all before you and and win both, because that really does lead, doesn't it, to a kind of turbocharged presidency, at least in theory. Yeah, in that instance, the president would be able to work with the leader of the House of Representatives and his leader in the Senate as well. And they would all be on the same page with the legislation that they wanted to get passed through both houses so that it could make its way to the president's desk and he or she could sign it. It's not that often that the president has that much control and almost always going into their second term, they'll find that they don't have uh, control of both houses of Congress, in which case legislation can just be held up interminably if either the Senate or the House of Representatives won't pass it. You can get a very frustrated president who's just not able to get through the legislation he wants. I want to turn to the history of the role of the president with you, Margaret, if I may, because it obviously has changed down the years and there have been quite a few of those years. So since the first president, since George Washington, what has happened to the power of the president and the ability of that person, and it has always been that man until now, to to get done what he wants done? Well, the modern presidency is far more powerful than the architects of the Constitution ever, ever envisioned. Keep in mind that the United States was an enterprise that occurred because of desire to get away from having kings and having one person in charge. And the presidency, in fact, wasn't an office that was in the original Articles of Confederation, which was the first founding document governing the United States. They realized quickly that they needed somebody to be a commander in chief of the military, someone to execute the laws passed by Congress. It's called the executive branch for a reason, because it is executing legislation. And that really encapsulates a lot of what the legislators who were the ones who wrote the Constitution um, thought of the presidency, that it was kind of a helpmeet and a partner rather than something that was a supreme branch. And really a turning point in the power of the presidency occurred not simply with the enlargement of the government and the United States becoming an industrial superpower starting at the beginning of the 20th century, but particularly its status as a military and a nuclear superpower that started in 1945. And with the growth of the national security state, which the president has oversight over, that has been a major factor in enlarging the role of the job and also how consequential it is to the rest of the world. And that brings us bang up to date. Sarah, what are the powers of the president if the president decides that he might want to push those powers or even abuse them. Yes, there has been a lot of commentary in the United States about whether or not uh, Donald Trump would become an autocratic leader or a dictator if he was re-elected. And so he was asked directly on Fox News, would you be a dictator? And he said he would like dictatorial powers for one day in order to act to close the US-Mexico border and also to start drilling for oil again in protected bits of American land, because he thinks those are the two priorities that he really wants to get on with. That does show you to an extent how somebody like Donald Trump is frustrated by the lack of executive power that the president has. He can't just do whatever he wants once he gets into office. Uh, But of course, it has kicked off a very lengthy debate about uh, whether he would be trying to abuse the powers of the presidency to become some kind of autocratic ruler and whether that will test the bounds of the US Constitution. Yeah. And Margaret, if he were to do that, say, for instance, politicise the Department of Justice, 
go after people who are his political enemies, try to get them prosecuted for crimes, real or imagined. If he were to tell the military to do things on American soil that they don't generally do, put down riots, perhaps go to the southern border, perhaps even order them to shoot civilians, what stops him, if anything? Well, what stops them is the other branches of government and the other people in government. And I think that is also what's so worrisome about this moment. As we've seen in the past and in the recent past, the Congress has been a break on presidential power to the great frustration of many a president of both parties. And if there are Republican majorities in Congress or even with the very, very thin majority that the Democrats hold in the Senate, which is uh, the prognostications are not good that the Democrats are going to hold on to that. But it's a long time till the election. We don't know. But if you have Congress, it's kind of allowing not putting a break on the executive, allowing Donald Trump to do that. And you also have a judicial system at the top of which is the Supreme Court, on which there were three justices appointed by Trump and six conservative justices. If the courts and the Congress do not put the brakes on, then yes, there could be some quite alarming scenarios. But the way that this is structured is there are supposed to be brakes on power. The dogged intent of the founding fathers um, was to prevent this type of a demagogue, a tyrant autocrat from taking power and taking control. It is a fact, isn't it, Sarah? Finally, 2024 could be a pretty odd year in American presidential history. I mean, there are all manner of things that could happen and not all of them necessarily predictable even now. In any presidential election year, there are always, as the former US Defence Secretary Donald Rumsfeld would say, known unknowns and unknown unknowns. I think this year will be even more unpredictable. That's partly because Donald Trump is in the race and he doesn't respect the normal uh, rules and order of things. But it's also because everything has become so much more contested. You have uh, large numbers of the electorate who don't believe the result of the last presidential election in 2020 and are absolutely convinced that there will be electoral fraud happening. You've got candidates who will go further than ever to try and boost their own election prospects, including going to the courts if they have to. And uh, we might always say this, but I think even more so than ever in 2024, anything could happen. That's it from us. Hopefully we all understand US elections a bit better now. Thank you to all my guests. You can listen back to the full series of Understand as a podcast. Just search for Understand in your podcast app. And remember, if you want to keep up with all the news and goings-on during the 2024 election, you can also listen to AmeriCast weekly, wherever you get your BBC podcasts. In a world that doesn't pause, catching up isn't enough. The Financial Times keeps you one step ahead in your life and career. With breaking news detailed analysis, and a deep understanding of the global economy. Don't just keep pace, set the pace. Fearlessly Pink, The Financial Times. Read more at ft.com slash fearless. If you want to make a change this year, check out How to Be a Better Human, a podcast from TED. I'm Chris Duffy. I'm a comedian, and each week on How to Be a Better Human, I sit down to have an honest and hopefully funny and revealing conversation with an expert who can help us to see the world in a new way. This season, we're diving into everything from how you can love better to how to create habits that stick 
to how to have hope in a world and at a time where that feels really challenging. You can find all those topics and so many more on episodes of How to Be a Better Human, wherever you get your podcasts. 